And now, we're going to enter the world of medicine to present a story from the podcast Nocturnus. We're going to go live on stage to hear the doctor take us inside a hospital emergency room. When I was an intern, sometimes I'd be asked to go to a room and pronounce a patient dead. Later on, I realized that this was one of the least important jobs, which is why it was assigned to me. These were always patients who had been expected to die, and they didn't want to be resuscitated, and all that was really needed was a doctor's signature for the paperwork. But at the time, I was terrified of getting it wrong, that <laughs> later in the morgue, the patient would unzip herself out of the body bag, and I would end up in the news. <laughs> So I once listened with my stethoscope on this 100-year-old woman's chest for five entire minutes until the nurse finally came over and lifted up the diaphragm of my stethoscope and said into it, is this thing on? <laughs> but since then, I've called the time of death for lots of patients that have died in my emergency department, which brings me to Mark. On the day that I met Mark, the day that he was brought to my emergency department, he didn't look so good. His skin was gray and sweaty, and I could see that it was hard for him to breathe, but he made eye contact with me, which is enough for me to at least try and quickly introduce myself before going about the rapid work of keeping someone alive. Hello was about as far as I got when Mark's heart stopped. Mark's nurse started chest compressions, and I intubated Mark to try and help him breathe, and we went through the typical sequence of resuscitation until Mark's pulse came back, and then it was lost again, and then it came back and was lost again, and after a few more episodes of that, I searched for Mark's pulse and found nothing and used an ultrasound probe to view his heart up on a monitor where I could see its musculature had gone still. No one plans to die in an emergency department, but I've become used to giving that news to the families of those who have. By now, I was comfortable with it. Sometimes it bothered me how comfortable I could be. I once had an attending compare giving that news to tossing a subpoena through a door that's about to slam shut on your hand. But now I tend to think of it more as a refrain with three beats that must be sung correctly. I have terrible news. Pause. Your husband has died. And there's a lot more to it than just that, but that's the rhythmical core of it. It's the part that you must not stammer. And that's what I told Mark's wife, uh, Samantha, when she arrived. I led Samantha. Uh, down to Mark's room where he lay and I pulled up a chair for her and I stood beside her while she cried and then I waited for a calm moment to excuse myself from the room and while I was waiting my attention wandered up to the clock and I calculated the hours I had left in my shift and thought about what I might make for dinner at home when I got there and that was around when Mark gently extended his neck <laughs> as if 
reaching for the surface of a lake. What's that? Samantha asked me. And I explained to her that this is what's called an agonal movement, and it's a brainstem reflex of the dying process, and it's normal. And then I asked her how she and Mark had met. Now, I never asked anything like that in a situation like this, and I wasn't really sure why I had. Maybe it was to help Samantha remember Mark differently from how he looked now, and maybe it was also to distract Samantha while I quietly reached my fingers down to Mark's wrist, where I now felt a weak and slow but undeniable pulse. <laughs> yeah. So I stood there with Mark's pulse flickering in my hand while Samantha told me that she had met Mark 15 years ago while at a park, and by that point in their lives, they were each in their 50s and had become used to the idea of being single, but three months later, they were at their own wedding. By now, Mark had been physically unwell for a long time, and Samantha said that she had begun to imagine the ways in which Mark might die. Maybe she would find him in bed one morning, maybe they would be out on a walk together, and he would have to take a break and catch his breath and just be unable to get back up. She hoped that by imagining his death, it would somehow make his actual one more bearable, as if she could pay off some of that grief in advance, rather than having to bear all of it in one lump sum. But now that it was here, it felt unreal, as if this were just another version of his death that she had thought up. And she looked up at me and asked, is that normal? Normally by now, I would have left the room. <laughs> now, I knew that there was nothing that I or anyone could do to save Mark's life, and I already felt his pulse becoming weaker in my hand, but I had never told the wife that her husband was not really dead. I had just never learned how to do something like that. And by now, I think Samantha must have noticed a dent in my composure, and she asked me, is something wrong? And without knowing if what I was saying was the right thing, I told her that I feel a weak pulse, and it's getting weaker now, and I expect it to disappear soon. And she asked me, what do you think we should do? And I said, I think we should let Mark die. And she seemed relieved by that. And I felt more grateful for that reaction than I'd like to admit. Afterwards, uh, when I was able to excuse myself, I walked down the hallway into the bathroom and closed the door and locked it and stood there for a long time, or at least as long as the department would allow. There were already other patients waiting in other rooms and more tests for me to order, and I could hear another ambulance backing up into the entryway. And I worried about what I'd say next to Samantha, but by the time I'd gotten caught up, she had already left for home, and eventually Mark's body was collected for the morgue. The thing about life is that one day you'll be dead. And that's as terrifying as it is forgettable. That contradiction is as much a part of working around death 
as it is just simply living. So on my better days, I'm mindful of the deta details and the people around me. And on that day, on my drive home, I reflected on none of that and instead worried over all the other mistakes that I've ever made in my life. I have a really long commute, and so I got as far back as preschool when I <laughs> tapped on the panels of the class ant farm and collapsed all of the diligently excavated tunnels. But by the time I'd gotten home and parked my car, my anxieties had mostly burned themselves out. And I thought about Samantha and that Mark had been a pretty lucky guy. And walking back up to my apartment where my wife waited, I felt lucky too. Thank you. That story is performed live in San Francisco at the medical storytelling show, The Nocturnist. For more stories from the world of medicine, check out The Nocturnist wherever you get your podcast, or visit their website at thenocturnist.com. Find them on social media. We love this podcast. Special thanks to Anna Adlerstein, Ali Block, Ale Papazalu, Marina Poole, and the storyteller, Joe Sills.